one is a great American city with great people and a winning tradition of basketball this century. It's amazing. The other is New York. They suck. They just hired a rat czar. New York City finally has a rat czar to declare war on the rodent population. This is a Fear the Fro playoff podcast. We will stand. We will fight. And here's your host, me. Bob Schmidt. Hello, Cavs fans. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I am Bob Schmidt, lifelong Cavs fan, host of this Cavalier podcast on the brink of a decisive game five, one which we need a win in to string this series along. Now, I am not, uh, I'm going to be, this is going to be an emotional roller coaster because I'm waffling between depression and irrational confidence. And that has been the case for much of the last two days. It's one of the things that makes doing a podcast in the aftermath of a, a winnable game. I hear a lot of reasonable takes on podcasts from people who have different things to center their life, whether that be children or family. And here I am in a basement living and dying with every victory and every loss. And I'm a sad, sad man in that regard. But here we are down three, one, the odds are against us. Historically long odds, 258 and 13. That is the record of teams that lead 3-1 in the playoffs. Now, obviously, the most notable of those 3-1 comebacks are very own Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA Finals. But in the first round alone, 75 times a team has taken a 3-1 lead, and in those series, teams are 72-3. and History is against us. Now, it's happened. Nine out of the 13 instances where teams came back from a 3-1 deficit It was a home team. It was a higher seed. It's not impossible. You just have to win one thus far elusive Madison Square Garden victories. Hasn't happened yet, but if you're going to advance, it's going to have to. You have to hold home court, and you need to break the Madison Square Garden slump that you're in. In recent history, 2020, Denver did it. They came back to defeat Utah In 2016, the Warriors did it against the Thunder. In 2015, the Houston Rockets did it against the L.A. Clippers. The Phoenix Suns in 2006 did it over the Los Angeles Lakers with Kobe Bryant. It's one thing to lose this series in six because you lost a terrible game one for both teams and then the Knicks simply held home court. It is a far different thing to take a team that won over 30 games at home this season, one of the best home records in the NBA, and for them to dump two games on their home floor. That will be a bitter pill to swallow, and one which is only going to ratchet up the heat on JB, on the front office, on everyone. Now, we'll get into that later. I'm not going to dwell on that too much because this series isn't over, no matter how much Stephen A. Smith will tell you that it's over. It looks so beautiful as the second round of the Eastern Conference playoffs are upon us. I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that. The man, he thinks God is with the New York Knicks. God was on our side. Now, maybe he's right. Maybe the dog-sized rats that are overtaking that city are, you know, a precursor to a plague. Cleanse some sin and... There's definitely some Knicks fans who should be sacrificed for being just trash human beings. Here's a compilation. Fuck Cleveland! 
Fuck Ohio, yo Donovan Mitchell. Next time, bring your mother. Fuck Donovan Mitchell. Fuck Trey Young. Fuck Donovan Mitchell. Fuck Jeremy. Darius Garland is not built for New York. Fuck Darius Garland. He's not built for New York. Listen to that sea of human garbage. Amidst all the profanity and Cavalier mentions, Trey Young even gets in there. It just goes to show you, if you can overcome, as we desperately try to find silver linings to the situation that we're in, there is this. A decisive victory in the first round by the higher-seeded team, the Cavs, it would have been forgotten over the course of time. It would have been just chalked up to, well, they were supposed to win. And now, instead, we sit on the precipice of a summer of suffering or one of the most crushing collapses in New York Knicks history. It's there for us. Now it's on this squad. The Cavs are going to need far more from their front court. They're going to need both their guards, at least two of the three primary guards in the backcourt, to show up. The turnovers have to be kept to a minimum. We cannot have a collapse on the road. But the first step in that is win game five. You win at home, you take it back to Madison Square Garden, and then buttholes start to pucker because the Knicks know if they head into game seven, tied up in Cleveland, that 3-1 confidence becomes much more meager. The pain inflicted upon the smug portion, I don't want to condemn every Knicks fan, but the smug portion of the Knicks fan base will be 10 times greater, 10 times more painful. So yes, I understand your pain, but I want you to remember that if there is a God, he certainly hates the Knicks. Richard Jefferson, your thoughts. Their fan base, they're rude. They are the most critical of their team. They just signed their first rookie extension since Charlie Ward. They hadn't drafted a guy and re-signed him in 25 fucking years. They are the meanest people to their own franchise and to each other. Bravo, Richard. Bravo. All right, we need this to fade out. How can I? Okay, there we go. There we go. Point is, it's long odds. But if the Cavs can turn it around, not only do they get some of that precious experience that we talk about so much in post-game press conferences, but not only does that happen, nobody wants a 3-1 hole. But everyone wants the glory and majesty of a 3-1 comeback. And you can't have one without the other. So that ends the pep talk portion of the podcast. Let's get into some specifics, though. By this point, we have beaten to death the areas that need to improve. The interior, we've got a four-game sample. It is not getting better. In fact, Jared Allen has waned in these last two games in Madison Square Garden, just collecting nine rebounds over those two games. It is very difficult to win a series getting what we're getting from Evan Mobley and Jared Allen. Now, I, I'm not condemning Mobley. I do think he's essentially taken Julius Randle out of this series, so much so in that Julius Randle also takes Julius Randle out of the series. Some bad shots, a lot of deep shots. He's not hitting anything. He has been objectively bad in this series, and despite that, they could persevere without him. But Jared Allen is getting bullied And despite scoring 14 points in Game 4 to come away with just four rebounds in a game in which we gave up another 17 offensive rebounds, you can't win that way. If you told me I would be sitting here saying that the Cavaliers were the worst front court, knowing what Julius Randle was going to put forth, my mind would have been blown. 
Hartenstein and Robinson are not better than Allen and Mitchell. This series, they are. There's no debate about it. And what a kick in the nuts it is to know that just a few years ago, Isaiah Hartenstein was a Cavalier. Now, I'm not saying that he, I understood why we didn't re-sign him, but we had his qualifying offer, which was minimal due to where he was drafted. We had complete leverage over the situation. We just thought we were so deep at the position that it was unnecessary to spend any significant amount of money on a backup who wanted to be featured more. The Cavaliers didn't even extend it. Now, this is clearly the benefit of hindsight, but how nice would it have been? August 2021, the Cavaliers extend a qualifying offer to Isaiah Hartenstein for $2 million. That's all it would have taken to avoid him hitting unrestricted free agency. And instead of him having to sign a minimum deal, a show-me deal with the Clippers, along with Harry Giles and ending up winning that battle and then having a solid season and parlaying that into a decent paycheck from the Knicks, what if we just made him the offer, teams shied away from giving him a competitive offer, and we retained him for $4 million a season? A two- to three-year deal. We wouldn't even be dealing with him right now. He would be the backup to our bigs in all likelihood. But we didn't do it. And here we are. Getting smoked on second chances. Game in and game out. That has been the one thing that I have been, more than anything else, so dramatically wrong about. What a goddamn idiot. This podcast host is an idiot. He's the dumbest guy on the internet because he got that prediction dead wrong. Dead wrong. I fully expected the battle. I fully expected the Knicks players to get offensive rebounds. It was well chronicled. Mitchell Robinson and Hartenstein were the two guys who accumulated the most of them against the Cavaliers this season, number one and number two. But I did not expect, with the benefit of being able to game plan for the same opponent, night in and night out, that Jared Allen and the team as a whole wouldn't be more effective in limiting the second chance opportunities of the New York Knicks. Now I've seen the talk begin the, oh, well, we've got to trade Jared Allen. I would say this, pump your brakes. Yes, he is getting outplayed in this series. There's no way around that. But there's a couple things I will say. Mitchell Robinson is the best offensive rebounder in the NBA. Don't let the fact that he doesn't score fool you into thinking that he is not one of the more difficult matchups Allen could have drawn in the first round. And Bede, clearly the guy I'd want to avoid the most. But Mitchell Robinson, right up near the top. There's not a much more disadvantageous matchup for him on the interior in terms of preventing rebounding. But secondly, if you like what Mobley's doing against a Julius Randle, who takes him all the way out to the three-point line, for those of you so eager to pull the plug on the Jared Allen experience and say, well, we need wing help, we got to trade him, two considerations. One, then who's the de facto for? Dean Wade. Jetty Osman, or are we just going to solve that in free agency? Somebody will take the job. Secondly, Mobley being able to roam, Mobley being able to go out and contest shots on Julius Randle, that's not possible if you have to leave him back at the rim to try to keep Mitchell Robinson off the glass, which, good luck. What's been bad this series could be astronomically bad if Jared Allen wasn't there. So I get it. He's underperforming expectations. Even I, a fro enthusiast, is disappointed. But 
Whereas some people think the solution for us to fix that is to get smaller, I disagree. I think the bigger issue is that we don't have depth. The Kevin Love conundrum, as it were. I'm not saying he would solve all the problems, but again, we're back here giving away a rebounder for nothing. That's not something that I would pin on Jared Allen. I would say direct your ire towards the front office in that capacity because it is something that is proving very problematic with the draw that we got in the first round. Now, another factor there is Josh Hart, who's been unbelievable. Just the perfect acquisition for a team looking to dominate on the offensive glass. And at the time of the trade, I thought, well, I don't know. They're going to have to pay him in the summer. He is getting paid. He is going to opt out of that uh, that deal. And you got to think, with the way that he's playing, he could push his average annual value to 18 to 20 mil a season. It would not shock me in the least to see him get Fournier money and actually earn that money. But with Jalen Brunson so capable of whenever we put Darius Garland on him, taking him into the block, working that mid-range, he was masterful in that capacity in this last game. It forces a big to have to shade over, and sometimes that's all the lane a guy needs to create second-chance points. Is Obi Toppin, second-chance points is what am I, fucking Gollum? Obi Toppin, five offensive rebounds. Josh Hart getting on the defensive glass, seven rebounds a game over the course of the series. And we know what Mitchell Robinson and Hartenstein are going to do. They've been great. It's a tough situation and that our personnel just simply isn't as good at rebounding as what the Knicks have. And that's not something that we can address. We can throw different bodies out there. We could decide, hey, we're going to go Dean Wade. We're going to go Stevens. But the guys we are playing, Karis LeVert, is doing work on the glass. Since that one for seven, game one turd he laid, where he played just 18 minutes, he has accumulated 17 rebounds over the course of three games. So for him to be chipping in over five a game is big. And Osman is trying. He's got a five-rebound game, a six-rebound game. Unfortunately, that's come along with two-for-13 shooting from outside the arc. So on a surface level, I thought that Lavert and Okoro and Osman, I've understood this concept of throw long length at Brunson. I agree with it. We can debate who should start, who should come off the bench, but I've agreed with going to them. Not Rubio. Rubio I would have yanked. But the reality is the long length that has maybe helped limiting Jalen Brunson's ability to just take over games, it hasn't come with particularly good three-point shooting. Even Karis LeVert, who saw his three-point shooting jump dramatically this season, has fallen much more down towards the 30% range as we've hit the postseason. Now, that's a team-wide problem. Overall, LeVert has had a very solid playoff showing. Sadly, we've had to rely on him because some of the other guys we thought we could rely on have been worse. Now, the Knicks, much better Off the bench, they're in the top half of the playoff teams, getting 28 points a game to the Cavs' 20. But that's not going to sink you if you get any semblance of normal production from your Donovan Mitchell, your Darius Garland. And here's the problem. Mitchell blew up game one. In a game we lost, he scored 38 points. And it mirrored a lot of the criticisms. We heard Bill Simmons talk about it, others. Can the Cavaliers win if Donovan Mitchell is so assertive and dominant that it prevents other guys from getting involved? Well, games two, three, and four, 17 points, 22 points, 11 points. And this last one was just abysmal. Missed every one of his three-point looks. This is a guy who hit six to eight three-pointers a game against the Knicks every single game, and we make it to these last three. He has four three-pointers in three games. The sad part is, yes, it has increased the the naysayers about the trade. That's That was inevitable because some people looked at that trade and they're holding to the Cavs to some impossibly high standard 
of, well, this is not a title team. No, it's not this year. I think we can all acknowledge that. I think most of us expected them to win in the first round, though. So if he plays a large part in why the Cavaliers don't, after everything that they gave up for him, he's going to take some strays. I get that. But the the real disappointing part here, I expect guys like Mobley and Garland to ebb and flow home and road more. They're younger. They hadn't seen the playoffs before. In that regard, I do think that you get better as you get more experience during the playoffs. But Donovan Mitchell came into this season with 40 games almost of playoff experience. I do not expect the type of shooting that we saw from him in that game four. You can almost never survive that. And the fact that we got a transcendent second half, a 21-point second half, in which during the third quarter, it looked like Darius Garland could do whatever he wanted, and Jalen Brunson could not do a goddamn thing to stop him. And despite that, two points, one for nine from Donovan Mitchell, it offset it. You can't have that. Now, silver lining, Darius Garland showed up on the road. He had a very, very bad first game in Madison Square Garden, four for 21, one for seven from range. To see him shake that off in game two, it at least gives you hope that if we get to a game six, maybe we'll get a more balanced output from the two-star guards. This is a team so dependent on those two guys being effective. One can be great. The other guy can just play to averages. You can win. But for a Knicks team to shoot as badly as it has, for Julius Randle to play as badly as he has, for R.J. Barrett to disappear for the first two games, for quickly to be pretty bad, definitely far worse than Knicks fans expected, and a non-factor really in this series, for all those things to go the Cavs' way, only to have it sunk, it's frustrating. Now, I think if we saw anything from that Cavalier win in Game 2, it's that they can all show up collectively. If they do that, in that game where Mitchell had 17, yeah, that's not the highest scoring output. But in that game, too, he had 13 assists. He, Garland, and Levert all balled the fuck out. And he only had two turnovers. These last two games, he's averaging six turnovers a game. He has 12 turnovers in those games in the Garden. That is, that has to stop. Donovan Mitchell can be better. And again, the same thing that applies to JB applies to Donovan here. It will be a far different discussion in the summer. If you lose in five, if you drop two games at home versus you take it to six, you lose in the Garden. It's a completely different discussion. It may not be fair, but it's true that the Cavaliers leveraged the future and gave up a bunch of depth to fix a problem which we all saw, which was too much was on Darius Garland's plate. And now, sadly, it doesn't seem to matter. But let's also touch on what's happening in the other side of the bracket here. The Cavaliers battled and battled to try to get the three seed for a couple reasons. One, we wanted Brooklyn, ideally. Nobody really wanted the Knicks or the Heat if we could get Brooklyn. After that, I think it was debatable how people felt between the Knicks and the Heat. Well, don't look now, but the Heat are up 3-1 on the brink of eliminating the number one seed Milwaukee Bucks, who have played much of this first-round series without Giannis. However, he was back last night. It did not matter, though, as Jimmy Butler put together an all-time great performance, 56 points, and just an incredible run in the fourth quarter from the Heat to take that victory and be sitting there on the brink of a second-round matchup against the winner of this Knicks Cavaliers series. We are witness, baby! If anybody had Knicks versus Heat in the second round, I hope you had the balls to wager on it. Because if it comes to fruition, the Bucks were Vegas favorites to make it to the finals, so I have to imagine some cash 
could be had. But my point in bringing this up was to highlight the fact that we are looking at a possible reality of Kevin Love in the second round and the Cavs in Cancun. And that would be another bitter pill to swallow. Now, it's well documented, my feelings on the Kevin Love situation. You can simply go back to around the trade deadline when we bought him out. And you'll see that I was opposed to not shopping him, to even granting the buyout, even if you didn't have time to shop him. The fact that we are struggling so much on the boards makes that even more difficult. Yeah, it's easy in hindsight to do this. My bigger issue is just a certain way of operating that I think at times, now anybody who's old enough to remember the Danny Ferry era as GM remembers what a unrepentant dick he was when it came to leveraging any and all team advantages. And that's why we saw things like the Pavlovich holdout, the Anderson Verizhou holdout, the holdout, in fact, that went so long that when he finally signed in mid-December, LeBron James came off the bench to prevent him from being booed. Those things would never happen, probably not in today's NBA period, let alone in the Cavs front office. But there is a middle ground. Buying out love, it served no purpose for the Cavaliers unless you believe that he could single-handedly destroy the locker room. I would have simply said, listen, $30 million, you can ride the pine. If somebody gets hurt, you can play. We don't owe you anything. And I think that's one of those situations where they should have done that. And, and far too often, I referenced Hartenstein, Hartenstein, excuse me, earlier in the podcast. It makes you wonder, we all saw glimpses when he was playing garbage time with the Cavs that year before he hit his restricted free agency summer. It does make you wonder if they decided not to pick up the option as a courtesy to him, knowing that Mobley was coming in and they didn't expect him to get a lot of minutes. I would have simply said, listen, he's an NBA player. We should keep him. We have the advantage of restricted free agency. Let's use it. You can make the same argument for how we handled Drummond and Thompson. You could make the same argument for how we handled even paying Jared Allen. I mean, we could have turned the screws a little bit more there and probably got a slightly more team-favorable deal, which I love Jared Allen, but... If some alternate reality plays out where they do decide all of a sudden to shop him, his deal would be far more movable as a $15 million contract, or far more attractive anyway, than it is as a $20 million contract. That's just a reality of finance. I do hope that in the future, I mean, this is one of those times where they bet on, well, this isn't going to burn us. We don't need him. Well, look at our situation now. Our starters aren't doing what we expected. The bench is devoid of many reliable options, especially in one significant capacity, which Kevin Love never diminished at, and that was rebounding. But now I'm deep down this wormhole of stuff that this can all be discussed if and when, which again, as I said, I'm not conceding that yet. We have a very winnable game five. Here's what I'd like to see change. Isaac Okoro and Levert both have to be heavily involved in the defense of Jalen Brunson. I did not like the Mitchell assignment. I think when we took him away from having to guard Brunson, it opened up a lot of his offense in the second half. Now, if you can get those switches where Brunson's guarding, you know, Darius or Donovan, then you take him. But as has been noted, I mean, Donovan hasn't had much luck in that capacity. It's been a lot of bull rushes against Josh Hart. Defensively, though, Levert and Okoro need to be tasked with slowing down Brunson. And you live with the results. If the other guys burn you, so be it. But I'm far 
less worried about R.J. Barrett on the road than I am about what he did to us in these last two games. Josh Hart, I mean, he's I expect a consistent performance from him on the road. He's a very effective player. He's good at what he's good at, getting out in transition. I thought he was a bit of a crybaby in Game 4 trying to get whistles, but I thought the Cavs did a reasonably good job contesting without fouling, and the refs recognized that. I have to hope that Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell are both monstrously more effective, but I don't know that that's really a discussion worth having. I think we all expect that. Defensively, though, Levert, Osman, Okoro, Green. I don't need to see Rubio. I don't need you going crazy now and throwing Dean Wade out there or even Lamar Stevens as much as I like Lamar Stevens. Eight, nine-man rotation. Limited Green, but roll out Levert, roll out Okoro, roll out Osman. Hope that Osman gets a much better shooting performance than what he's had so far this series. And you win game five, you take it back to Madison Square Garden in game six. There's what needs to happen is we need better performances from our starting unit. We need Jared Allen and Evan Mobley to work their asses off to shore up the glass as much as possible. And we need Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell to both be reasonably effective. Karis LeVert, I've enjoyed him. All these off-season discussions, what to do with Jared Allen, what to, this is the last one I'll have briefly here. The J.B. Bickerstaff thing, if you're hoping for him to be fired, and I heard Bill Simmons say, well, I think, uh, I think that discussion is happening. No, I don't think it will. In fact, I think he'll get an early vote of confidence in the offseason, even if we lose in five, because I do think the front office is going to shoulder a lot of the blame and say, well, listen, we haven't even really given him a full offseason to address the depth. They're going to acknowledge what most of us should as well, which is whatever warts JB has had this postseason, putting Garland on Brunson at the beginning of that last game, you know, playing Rubio at all, which again, it was six minutes. I mean, that wasn't going to win or lose us that game. As much as I disagreed with it, we tend to fixate on the things that we didn't like while overlooking some of the things like we've shot objectively horribly sub 30% from three-point range. You can't win if Donovan Mitchell does what he does in that last game, if Darius Garland does what he does in game three. And those are things that any coach we had would be playing those guys 35 or 40 minutes. Any coach we brought in here would be rolling out Jared Allen, even if he's giving you four rebounds in a game. So I won't put all that blame on JP. Now I'm not saying that I mean this is this is meaningful to me. What's happened in this playoffs carries far more weight than what happened in the regular season, and I don't think I would say that he's been a good coach, but I also think a lot of people have let me down, and it's tough to attribute blame to any one source. And the fact that the Cavaliers preach culture and we're building something, which implies continuity, I don't expect any shakeup whatsoever. Now this happens again next season, we're talking a totally different story because then you have the looming 2025 summer of Donovan Mitchell coming and knowing that he could walk out the door after everything you gave for him. Now that's two more years, but I don't expect it this season. And for those people who expected JB shakeup this off season, I think you're going to be sorely disappointed. Miss me on the whole Nick Nurse thing. I don't want any part of somebody who is willingly participated in the fraudulent Rookie of the Year campaign for Scotty Barnes are associated with that Canadian filth. There's only one Canadian that I would willingly associate myself with, and that's Justin Rowan. The rest of them can burn in hell. So let's get a win, because I'm, I've got one in the chamber. I've got a front-running, sack-of-shit, 
musical production in the chamber, but it's only really going to be relevant if we win. Not to say I won't play it if we lose, because I put a lot of fucking time into it. But that makes it all the more important that the Cavaliers win game five and at least give us a chance. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. Thank you so much. For everybody who has listened, who has left ratings, who has subscribed, we're winning game five. That's not a bold prediction, but I'm saying it anyway, because there's a lot of sadness right now, but this isn't over. Not yet. We still have to take the joy of this man and destroy it. Now, his sentiments, I agree with. It's the way I feel about all of you, but I don't want to hear this kind of happiness coming from Stephen A. Smith. I leave you with this. I love everybody. I love everybody. Cavs in seven, because everything else is impossible. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.